Hello, welcome to the Cycle Systems Online Podcast. I'm joined by my sometimes co-host and all-time producer, John Galloway. How are you doing, John? I'm very well. It's a sunny day here in Scotland, which is uh, increasingly less rare, actually. So I'm going to go out with the dog after we've recorded. I'm a happy boy today. Well, that sounds good. It's actually raining here in Switzerland, in Bern, and I'm happy about that because we've been in the middle of the Euro um, climate crisis heatwave, and it's been horrific. <laughs> been having to well, get up at 5 a.m. to go riding. If it's not the world war, it'll be global warming that'll kill us all soon, Sean. So let's talk about bicycles. Yeah, that'll make us happy, won't it? <laughs> um, so we were chatting before we were recording, and we said let's have a little Nairo rant because it's funny, isn't it? There hasn't been any major, major, major busts for a while in the world of cycling, and in a way. Mm. When you're a cycling fan, the doping cases are part of the entertainment. I mean, let's face it, you know. Let's no, just... I mean, they have to be. You have to take it like that or you'd go nuts. Exactly. Like, if you don't follow the sport or just take it as part of the entertainment. And um, there hasn't been any really big busts recently. There's been a few people like Pantano and stuff, you know, from quite big teams that no one seemed to talk about and they yeah. caught using EPO. Um, there's been a couple of Astana wankers popped as well, I noticed, and um, a whole team in Portugal. There's a whole team in Portugal as banned. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things, isn't it, as if these complete no marks are on the source, then you wonder about everything else. And then, then you get Jumbo Visma leasing, leaving the movement for credible cycling because of the court zone rules. And, you, yeah, you got to wonder. But, yeah. obviously, someone like Quintana, six in the Tour de France, positive. He wasn't six in the Tour de France. They're taking away from him, sure. Well, exactly. Positive for Tramadol. Now, I've had Tramadol, John. Have you had Tramadol? I have. I was, yeah, absolutely out my face on it. Yeah, I was getting traces, like on Akira, <laughs> you know, the film. It was like I was in Akira. And, yeah, it's not. It's a stagger and it's not on the wider list. I mean, that's why he's not officially banned because it's banned in cycling, but not the wider list. But he's still, it's a whole, I don't know anything about that. It must have been some sweets for my granny. They're never dopers yeah. until they've retired. And then they're like, well, yeah, we all did it. What do you expect? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really weird because two blood tests have, you know, proven positive for tramadol and its metabolites. Mm. Um, and they use it for a, a finishing bottle. Essentially, yeah. to take away the pain in your legs and your body when yeah. you're at the end of a 230 kilometer race and you have to go up a hill fast. And it was both on mountain um, stages, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's at points where his legs would have been hurting. And it's his best tour for, you know, for a long time. He's performed really well in it. But he's still, it's the old, you know, I know nothing about this. And the only way I can get my brain even vaguely around that is if he's being given vitamins by his coach you know and it's not vitamins it's, yeah. it's a preparation to help him yeah. and it's willful ignorance because you know it's a known product with a known use within the sport with known benefits at a point where it would have been of maximum benefit to him that he's tested positive and he's still claiming ignorance i mean they just take us for fools well i mean as i said for anyone who's taken it However hard a bike ride you do, you don't normally finish it after your throttle bottle and go, I'm tripping. <laughs> it's not a usual response, is it? 
I've, I've actually met some people who've taken tramadol and haven't had the response that you and I had. I mm-hmm. had it after I got my hip replaced. And, you know, once I got off the really super duper horse tranquilizer drugs, they gave me tramadol for the pain. And I, I definitely, I couldn't ride a bike, let alone race one on it. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think they deserve some credit just for being able to pedal. Yeah. yeah well, the thing is, who knows what else was in that throttle bottle that wasn't detectable? Well, it's a stack. I mean, they use it as part of a stack with other stuff. Mm. Um, all of which, I mean, up until recently, it was legal. You know, was it Michael Barry talked quite openly about using it at Team Sky. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, to a certain extent, I've got some sympathy with that, Sean. I mean, we'll get to tech stuff in a minute, I'm sure, although this is a kind of tech. <laughs> um, if you're not pushing the limits of what's legal, I don't think you're doing your job. You know, it's like F1. If it's legal and it makes you go faster, why not? Well, exactly. It's like with Wiggins. Um, everything that he did was within the rules. In fact, everything that he did was expressly approved by the anti-doping authorities. Yep. And when the um, kind of people outside of cycling looked at it, when they were looked into by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport in Britain, they were just completely taken aback. They said, well, he's taking drugs to ride a bike fast. <laughs> Yeah. From the outside, that's what it looks like. But from the inside, it did actually tick all the boxes. <laughs> um, we should probably talk about bikes, though. Yeah, um, okay. And actually, our topic today isn't really that much more cheerful. <laughs> um, we've got another recall from Trek on handlebars on the Amonda and the speed concept. Mm-hmm. Um, in some countries. And- in, in some, some countries, in some other countries, you're totally safe and you're fine. Yeah, not in all countries, and I hadn't heard about it. You had to put bring it to my attention, and I'm fairly gened up in the scene, so you know it's it's not being widely publicised even within the trade, uh, which seems a bit weird for something that's a safety concern. But this is just the the last of a. Hello, Sky. This is just the last of a long line of problems with carbon and its development and design. And they seem to be stacking up just now, Sean. Yeah, and we did um, a VIP lounge with Raul Lucia, which was released to our team camp members last month. And it was all about this because we've done various podcasts with Raul. We've done another VIP lounge with Raul in the past. But I wanted to talk about the new designs at the front end of bikes that some people like to call cockpits and the repeated i hate that by the way cockpit and fuselage yeah oh i've never heard the the latter that's horrific no fact factors call them fuselage well fuck them for a variety a million reasons and if you you just look at a bit of international news and you can figure that one out fuck them sideways um I wouldn't be seen dead on one of those bikes, I'll tell you the truth. But anyway, so they're good advertising guys, just saying. Um, (laughs) Anyway, coming back to the cheerful aspect of what was really interesting is anyone who follows Lucia Technique and follows Raoul's YouTube channel is that early carbon bikes, surprise, surprise, weren't that great. You know, we all remember um, Chris Boardman's Credit Agriculture team. I think everyone's bike failed on Mm -hmm. a time trial in the tour one year, but Chris was on an aluminium bike and was fine. Um, Lots of broken bikes in the early days. And they seem to be getting better and better and better. And if you watch Rao's videos inside Carbon Bikes, where he literally cuts bikes longitudinally and examines them and looks at the issues, you see It's a fantastic YouTube channel. Fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. It's no bullshit. It's no nonsense. Um, Rao's very authoritative, and he's got all of the tools. You can see in front of him, you know. 
what exactly what he's talking about. And what's really fascinating is the production has just been getting better and better and better. And Raoul said overall, the quality was vastly improving within the bike industry. And even the fakes that were relatively predominant, you know, a few years ago, Raoul said that the factories producing the fakes were basically bought into the fault. And they're yeah. now producing, you know, good bikes with higher quality control. So it looked like the bike industry was starting to get there, you know, after that little blip where they didn't really care if people lived or died with carbon clincher wheels, which we talked about on a previous podcast. Who clutch limbs? Yeah, well, we, that's that. I was going to bring that in at the end, but essentially, to make bikes look cool. But that's all it is to make bikes look cool because they do look cool with, without the cables and such to make them all look like brakeless fixies. What you've got is a completely different type of design, which seems to be inherently unsound. And yep. Raoul just gave a little list of brands that have had problems with this. So Cannondale, Trek, Cervelo, Specialized, Factor, Canyon, Bianchi, BMC, and that was just off the top of his head, you yeah. know, the ones that were live. And you've got to remember that Raoul has been an expert witness um, for coroner investigations where people have died because equipment has failed, and they want an expert to say, well, was this person being reckless or, you know, did they die because of equipment failure? So this is serious stuff. Yeah, I mean, we, we need to remember, and everybody listening to this podcast will know this, Carbon fails catastrophically. It just goes. Mm. You know, on a very, very rare occasion, you might get a partial break of the, you know, the fibres or something, and you'll get some warning. But more often than not, it's just a total failure. You know, there's it's not like aluminium or steel or whatever or titanium. There's no bend. There's no dent. It just goes. So yeah. it can be. I mean, catastrophic is not too strong a word. If your fork or your handlebars go, your face is meeting the tarmac. Yeah, and certain certain grades of titanium as well they're designed to be very stiff the 6-4 kind of military yeah. grade titanium and in fact what was funny was when the australian um track squad had um, a base bar break in the olympics last year mm. all of the world's internet warriors were like oh look at this carbon failure and it was titanium. It was titanium. It was 3D printed yeah. titanium. And it was from a really well-established company. I can't remember their name now, but it wasn't just Joe Bloggs and his shed. It was a team of people that Raoul had actually worked with. And he said, look, these guys are amazing. They do good quality control. They've got an auto um, sport background. So all materials can fail, guys. We're not mm -hmm. saying carbon's bad. But essentially, to make an aero front end, to get all your wires and hydraulic hoses and such inside, to make it look more aero. And I think that's really important, is in Rail's testing in the wind tunnel, he was saying that on a road bike especially, but even on some time trial bikes, sometimes bikes with external cables test faster. Detach the airflow, presumably. Yeah, some sort of trip, you know, like the, the trip yeah. socks and all the rest of it and shaving your legs with zigzags on it. It can trip, and it was probably accidental. But the fact is there's no great hard science necessarily for internal routing, although I bet John Paul Ballard would argue against that. I don't know, just a grease monkey, but I trust Raoul as well. So the difference is infinitesimal, to say the least, and certainly only needed 
for the world tour, even if it does benefit. You know, for Joe Bloggs riding a sportive or doing a 30-mile ride at 16 miles an hour, you don't definitely don't need it. And you might want it because it looks cool, but some of the problems here is the shapes that people are making in order to make it look cool. So essentially um, what we're looking at here is quite major recalls from quite major brands, specialized at Recaller for Sevens, other brands. Mostly the brands try to ignore the problem, which is worrying and hope yeah, it goes until away. It becomes- it goes public because there's been an incident. Exactly. And um, like, say, for example, when Raul investigated a Bianchi where the, the integrated handlebar had failed, this was from a, a, a fan, you know, a YouTube fan who'd um, been in touch with him and sent him photos, both of his own face, which was really smashed up. It was horrific injuries with quite severe dental work needed. Ooh. And uh, the bike, which was trashed, and Bianchi just paid him off. This will pay your dental bills. Yeah. And the same design is coming out. So essentially, there's pretty serious failures. And essentially, in order to make the bike look as it looks, um, what you're doing is rather than having a round steerer, uh, you, the, the fork steerer, you're making it either D-shaped or oblong-shaped. And then the stem has to be a similar shape as well. And, yep. the, and I think we mentioned this before, the big problem with that in a basic structure way is that carbon fibre doesn't like the corners. You know, it likes to go round. <laughs> and some of these bends are really tight. Exactly. So it's a really, really bad um, design. It's a really tight radius on the fibre itself. And essentially it can damage the fibre. It can cause wrinkles. It can cause kinks in the fibre and what they call bridging voids in the trade. So a bridging void is where the fiber can't get pressed into that corner, and you end up with a big void, just an air void, or a resin-heavy area, all of which are inherent weaknesses. So just- That's why Trent called the OCLV the OCLV. The, the LV was for low void. Exactly, yeah. And in fact, we've got quite a collection of Trek frames at the Academy, and the very early OCLVs, like we've got- um, first generation were done and the thickness on the carbon on that is tremendously overbuilt yeah i think so they could mass produce them with a reasonable degree of um assurance that it you know they wouldn't all snap as it were whereas some of the amondas and stuff we've got there's nothing to them you know the rim brake amondas are staggering frames. yeah you can squeeze them <laughs> well essentially um what you what you what you've got just with the shape of the steerer is pretty bad design and the same in a sense for the aero bars as well you're really having to bend those fibers around fibers around but then the stem isn't clamping you've mentioned it before haven't you on seat posts and why those aero seat posts can slip you've not got a nice 360 degree clamping force you've now only got clamping forces on a very small area from the stem onto the um, steerer itself yep and if you crash, one of the big things that saves your components is rotation. If you've got a round yeah. steerer, the stem can rotate, but it's not going to do that, you know, if it's not round. And the shape has to be perfect. 
you know, the slightest misshape reduces that clamping area even more. Yes. Um, you know, and that's the problem with the seat posts. Mm. Is you had a slight mismatch of uh, of shape, which meant you didn't have the full contact area to give you the friction, so they didn't slip. And I mean, we were talking about Factor. I know Factor, and uh, I think Canyon, in fact, definitely Canyon as well, had real issues with seat posts slipping in the Aero seat posts last year. Mm. Yeah, uh, apart from having to glue in there. Uh, compression buttons into the forks yeah. because the headsets were wobbling loose. God, yeah. Um, this, was our friend actually, Ga- this was our friend Gary Blam having to glue in, you know, a compression yeah. bug. And, I mean, the, the specialised recall as well, um, even the dealers got that wrong, didn't they, some of them? That's what was fascinating for me, and I had a good chat with Raoul about that because we were chatting on Twitter or Instagram about it because – People were posting photos saying, I've just got this bike back from the dealer after the recall. And after the recall, there was a new bung or something to make this second um, system that had failed work. And it was photos of how it should be from the dealer manual. And it was being done wrong. It was being fitted incorrectly. And what Rao said is, and what I've been saying for a long time, is bike mechanics just aren't paid enough to be working at this skill level. And that's the thing is people got to realize is when you've got a ten, fifteen thousand pound bike or even a three or five thousand bike, and we'll talk about the pricing later, what you've got is often staff who aren't trained, aren't qualified, aren't taken through any correct processes and procedures, and they just let loose on your bike because they're into watching the Tour de France. You could walk in off the street, service one of these machines. And you don't yeah. legally need any sort of qualification. The shop doesn't legally need to provide any sort of assurances. Imagine that on your car or your or a plane or a train. There isn't a single other method of transport that this goes on. Yeah, because it, people had a bike when they were young, so they, you know, they, they think it's a simple thing, and it just isn't anymore. I mean, I've often said, I, I worked as a, a pro mechanic for many years, um, and I've often said to you when we've been talking about training, if I was going to get back in the trade, I'd be spending six months at Cycle Systems Online mm. just to get up to speed, because even though I've got the manipulative skills, you know, my hands know what they're doing, I understand the concepts, getting hands-on experience and proper training is absolutely vital. And all of that costs money. And the problem is that people still think a bicycle mechanic is essentially the same as a cleaner. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just not paid enough. And the costs that should go into their training aren't offset by the by the shop. The best shops invest in training. Too many places don't. You know, it's the Saturday lady who's interested in bikes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is one of the things that Raoul said is essentially – the retail prices, they really don't reflect, one, the quality of production and, and quality mm-hmm. control from the factory, and then the level of skilled service and backup that you should expect for that price. You know, if you're paying, like, pretty much everyone's top-end bike now is, is five figures. If you're paying that sort of money for a bike, you expect it to actually have non-destructive testing as standard you expect rigorous quality control as standard and you expect me working on your bike or you or someone at a similar level and that just yeah. isn't the case yeah i mean the, the the one thing as well um cost is you look at the price of pro bikes now and they are horrifically expensive you know you can pay 
well, minimum of five grand. You know, that's that's an average entry point now for a, a kind of a decent racing bike. But it's easy to pay 14, 15, 16 grand. Yeah. And when you look into the design decisions and the manufacturing tolerances that these bikes demand, you know, it's not the same as even highly skilled welding together steel tubes. The price is actually easily justifiable. But if they met it, people yeah. still yeah, yeah, people still think it's a bike. So mm. you know they don't think it needs the kind of ongoing attention that these modern aero rockets actually need. Yeah. You know, you need to pay attention because a number of small crashes wind up in a row can actually cause just as much failure as one big event. Yeah, so it's not just crashes. Um, what Raoul was talking about is that the manufacturers are saying, well, the bikes aren't meant to be crashed. I mean, fair enough, you've got an 800-gram frame and you crash it, you might expect it to break. But Raoul was saying that essentially lots of little knocks on the bike can lead up to enough stress to cause um, a catastrophic failure. So this might be, do you remember when all the Team Sky wheels broke? And we all mm-hmm. thought probably they've just been knocked in and out, you know, of, uh, of trucks and stuff and just had too many of those impacts. And, you know, getting your bike in and out the shed, in and out the car, that can be enough on some of this super light equipment. Leaning it against the wall at a cafe. Exactly, with other people leaning their bike on yours yep. or sitting on the top tube to descend like Chris Room used to. So all of these little things can add up and you've got, you know, pretty um, serious failure. And that's before you get into user error in the build. I yes. mean, when I, when I started, I, it was a, a rare mechanic, let's be honest, who'd ever seen a torque range. Well, I, I put this in the notes. I did a level two course in 2003. That was my first formal training as a bike mechanic with Alf and Theresa Webb, who were fantastic. <laughs> Um, we never saw a torque wrench in those two weeks. It wasn't mentioned. Yeah. Didn't know they existed. Tighten it up, then give it a half turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, I mean, that will destroy your bike now. Yeah, you know, you totally. have to pay attention to every single torque rating and every single bolt when you're mm-hmm. building a bike now. Yeah, and use the carbon prep paste. And, and yeah. even then, you know, we recommend dismantling every year and checking the impact because – you know, obviously, I've, I like bikes, and I like to run top-end kit, and I've noticed, you know, really high-end carbon bars and such. After a few years of running them, even with carbon paste and torque and stuff, you can start to see there's an impact, and you need to swap them out. Yeah. And you wouldn't see it unless you dismantled to have a look. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a high-maintenance thing. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Um, I, I love high-end kit as well. And like you, I mean, I've ridden some of these modern super bikes, and they are an absolute blast to ride. Um, I wouldn't own one. Um, unless I was racing and somebody was buying me a bike or I was getting it to trade through a team, um, I, I'd stick to you know high-end steel or aluminium, to tell you the truth. Well, I mean, I'm on a carbon bike with all high-end carbon kit at the moment, and funnily enough... Um, the the frame I've got at the moment, it's a slightly older model, so it was before all this stuff came in, and it's got a round steerer and all the rest of it. And funnily enough, I got a message from our buddy Graham Freestone King, and he said to me, oh, Sean, you want to keep an eye on your bike? Because I just got called into a pro team to inspect their bikes of X brand, and all of them had cracks in the steerers. And it was, of course, the, yeah, the rectangular-shaped steerers that this yeah. had happened, so I was quite pleased on that. 
but it is about I will completely strip it and that bike and inspect it on a, at least once a well, no more than once a year to be fair. Now, you might be thinking, well, I think when Cycling Tips went to Specialized HQ to hear their designers talk bullshit, quite frankly, but when they went to that um, interview, which funnily enough was about the Future Shock 2, which all had to be recalled. Yep, good recall. Great idea. Didn't work. Yeah, it did work, but it didn't last. What they, what they said... Um, is I think they've got 100 PhD engineers working for them. So there are people who are far more intelligent than I am, far more better trained than I'll ever be, with a far greater understanding of engineering design than I'll yeah. ever have, right? But they keep on churning out crap that I know is crap. And I just wonder, how don't they know? And you can only think that, Often these people are engineers who are amazing at CAD drawings. And Ralph said this about Boeing, as in the trainees would come in at Boeing when he worked for them in, in Australia, who were CAD wizards. They could design the most amazing machines. But then there was mm -hmm. quite a lack of um, skill then in how to manufacture that and how to translate that into real-world manufacturing. And, of course, especially with the bike trade, where most bikes aren't made in-house, it's just contracted, um, one example that Raoul brought in was um, a frame that he examined. The, the sanding that had been done to prep the frame for paint had removed three of the seven layers of carbon in mm -hmm. certain areas, which were pretty high-stress areas. Yeah. So it's a great um, example of you can be a great PhD designer, but if Meiti Boy out in Taiwan or Bangladesh or China, you know, where, whoever's making your frame, is sanding a lot of that away. Yeah, or picks up the wrong grade to send paper that morning. Exactly, or maybe throws the frame into a box. You're not going to know yeah. how it's been treated. And the more um, people you have between the frame being laid up and being on the shop floor, the more possibility you have of it being a bit trashed. If you want to break into the bike trade, train your staff, or even learn some new skills just for fun, Cycle Systems Academy has a course for you. Our graduates come to us from all over the globe and train with us to gain the highest recognized cycle mechanic qualifications available. The bike industry supports and believes in Cycle Systems Academy, which means they'll believe in you too. We're not saying don't buy this stuff, you know, <laughs> but... Just be aware of what you need to be aware of is yeah. essentially it. And, I mean, you've got in the notes as well, general rule of thumb, don't be an early adopter. I think that is fantastic advice because you've got really uh, reputable firms making basic mistakes. I mean, how often have we talked about the bump stop on the Cervelos mm. where you've got a, you know, a bit of metal bouncing off carbon? Yeah, I mean, Cannondale had one of those as well. And, um, in fact, Cannondale did actually put some little... Um, metal plates they glued metal plates onto the carbon head tube because the bump yeah. stop was uh, for anyone who's listening who's not heard this when all of the di2 wires and hydraulic hoses and such are inside the bar and inside the stem and going down through the headset bearings if you over rotate your bars um what's going to happen is they're going to break or there's going to be like um a guillotine effect you know it's, it's yeah. gonna sort of chop through them so you need to restrict the steering like trek have got it on the mountain bikes as well so nothing crazy happens when you're in the air or something 
but essentially it's often just a big block. It's just a big metal block, which is glued onto the fork and hits the frame. The Trek yeah. um, Madones, you know, those are first two editions of the Trek Madone. If you go onto a Madone Owners Club Facebook page, they're all saying, what's up wrong with my frame? <laughs> There's a big notch in it. And Cannondale, yeah, they were just drawing the head tubes, you know, the, the, yeah. the forks hitting the head tubes. So they bonded some metal bits on. But when Raoul tested a head tube with the metal bits glued on, there was still damage to the carbon from yeah. that. I mean, you need that stall for so many reasons, because even just to stop the bars hitting the top tube when there's, mm. you know, really light layups yeah. if, if you crash. But it's just... Even it, I'm sitting here thinking, why would you think gluing a metal stop on a carbon frame was a good idea? Because I mean, why would you think it? Well, all I can think is that the ultimate responsibility here is to the shareholders. Yeah. It's as simple as that, as in the accountants with their spreadsheets have taken over the bike industry, like and they have everything else. And that's all that matters. You don't matter. If your bike fails while you're riding it, they don't care. It's as, it's as simple as that. They don't care. Even though, you know, you might meet the CEO of Trek or Specialized or whatever, and they're lovely people, and I have, and they were. But the monster of the corporate business model doesn't care. And most yeah. bike firms are owned by multi, multi, multi um national conglomerates and most of those are owned by two firms it turns out yeah. and one of those two firms owns most of the other yeah you know right. it's talking about black rock and those people they don't care about you and your bike so it is troubling to think well who do we turn to then it's what i said to Raoul. how do we know then what to buy because most bikes are fine it's not like most you go on a sunday club run and everyone's bikes are disintegrating um most bikes are fine, but how do you know which are and aren't? Which wheels are going to be okay? Which headsets? Which sorry, which head tubes, etc. And the simple answer is, it depends. Rao's one of the most famous <laughs> that's, phrases. That's not a simple answer. It's not. What Rao said is he tests everything. He's got the ultrasound. He won't ride anything he doesn't test. He won't let his kids ride anything that he doesn't test. And obviously, it's his world. But it is a bit worrying. So you think, well hold on a minute, aren't there regulations for this? You know, there are there's regulations about everything, aren't there? There's regulations yeah. about cheese. You know, certain, uh, our American listeners, there's certain types of French cheese you can't buy because there's regulations, right? And you can't buy proper Stilton anymore because it's not pasteurized or whatever. Exactly. So you'd think with a bike, which, you know, even amateur riders love to ride at, say, 100k an hour downhill, you know, um, but, you know, you can they, better get, they better get a license plate on that bike if they're going that speed. Mate. Well, definitely, yeah. That's, a, that's another story, isn't it? But um, essentially, if you want to regulate bikes, you know, if you're some arsehole looking for votes, if you want to be regulating bikes, what you want to be regulating is this manufacture and design and quality control because mm -hmm. the companies just want an extra zero on the balance sheet in their favour. So that it's not in their interest to, to produce it, to make it safe for you, 100%. You know, so it's a Russian roulette. And, okay, you might be spinning a very big barrel, but still not every chamber's um, empty. <laughs> and that's a concern. And the current regulations are either non-existent, not fit for purpose, or completely non-enforceable. 
And whether that's your tires falling off hookless rims, um, quality control and, and design of carbon components, it is a little bit worrying. And I guess you've just got to lose your fear of death and live every moment as if it's your last and embrace that, man. <laughs> That's a TV pill. I tell you, the other thing that strikes me about recalls, and we've had a lot of them, mm-hmm. you know, we've just scratched the surface here, is the, the you know, the uptake of them is is a relatively low percentage. Even here in Peebles, I'm aware of bikes that I know have been recalled that haven't been near a dealer since the recall happened. Yeah. Because people just don't hear about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or they're like, oh, it'll be all right. Yeah. You know, I, oh, I, no, I, fake, fake news, you know. You need to take it seriously. You know, if it gets to the point where a company is recalling something, and this comes down to money again, because it is incredibly expensive for these companies to operate a recall scheme, and that takes money off their bottom line. You know, the margins may be already quite tight, and if you have to do a recall, that margin's suddenly gone, and you're losing money on the entire range of bikes. Mm. So, if there's a recall, you know it's serious. They're not just doing it to save face or to, to appear to be doing the right thing. They know there's a real problem. Yeah, and especially at the moment, you know, I mean, remember when SRAM had to do a recall on every single hydraulic disc brake group set because yeah. they, they've released a dodgy prototype, essentially. Um, yeah. Imagine that now. You know, I mean, SRAM have got lead times up to 2025 on cassettes and things. I thought I'd dreamt that. Yeah. You, you, you tweeted about that the other day. Some lead times for parts are 2025 now. I know, as if that's accurate anyway. I mean, I will say that, um, you know, going on Madison and such and the UK suppliers, things aren't as, don't look quite as bad as they did for everything. But still, if you want decent group sets and such, you know, there's still a massive, massive wait. And then it's if at all. Here in Switzerland, it's pretty good, but there are a lot less bikes available. A lot less mountain bikes, actually. I was in a bike shop earlier and there's a lot less mountain bikes for sale than um, mm. there have been in previous years. And one thing that made me laugh is I was listening to um, the chap from bettershifting.com. Sorry, I forgot his name now. Um, absolute DI2 genius. And he was on the wonderful Nerd Alert podcast speaking to Dave Rome. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about some of the issues people have had with the new 12-speed DI2. So you can imagine you're one of these, you know, people like it's got Willy Wonka's golden ticket and you've got the DI2 12 speed. And he said, you get it out the box. So you either get the bike out the box or you get the kit out the box and it needs a firmware update. So it's, oh, it's like buying a laptop or a desktop. Yeah. You, you, you turn it on and it needs an update before you can use it. So it doesn't work, right? So fine, I'll do an update. I've got the YouTube app on my phone. Well, guess what? On the Jura Ace and Ortegra 12 speed group sets, in order to perform the firmware update on the shifters, they need to be wired into the system and you need to use the PC um, SME2 tool, the latest tool. Well, guess what? If you go, if you don't have one of those, if you or if it broke, right? We've only got one at Cycle Systems Academy, yeah. and we've got the older one. Um, if someone could stand on that or drop it or something, if you go into Madison uh, B2B today, the lead time for that is the middle of next year. So you could buy a <laughs> DIT 12 speed bike. 12 grand, or 50 grand, grand yeah. Uh, 15, 16 grand bike. Yeah. Uh, get out of the box because yeah. it's been, uh, it says, you know, 
I need an update. Sorry, you can't ride me until you get this tool that's not available. Yeah, exactly. And then even when you do do the update, because obviously the selling of all of this stuff, whether it's, you know, tech for the workplace or bikes or whatever, it's all sold as to make your life more convenient and easier and less labor intensive. How's that going, guys? Yeah. How's that going? It's just more ball ache. And you've got the best bike in the world, which obviously we know the performance of this stuff staggering, but it doesn't work and it might kill you when it does. <laughs> <laughs> Bad robot. Oh, God, this is a really cheery show, isn't it? I tell you, this, this makes me feel really smart because was it two weeks ago I was asking you which was the best mechanical Durace to source because I wanted to use a mechanical Durace in yeah. a frame. Did you get hold of a 9,000 group set? No, I'm still looking. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm the only one that thinks that, I will say. Yeah, I don't think I'm the only one that thinks that 9,000 was the pinnacle of their mechanical group sets. And beautiful too, actually. Yes, I mean, that's it, because the 9,100 mechanical, I thought was pretty fugly. And then yeah. the big thing about that is it had more aero brakes, which I thought really looked bad. Um they're very difficult to flip their quick release on and off when you're riding for people that like yeah. to do that when they honk out the saddle. But the big thing was the little tab on the rear mech, which of course was looking for the now period where pro teams are using direct mount rear mechs with a, a different hanger and that tab's mm -hmm. removed. Um, the 9000 had the much more traditional and solid knuckle. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna. It's it's kind of one of my constant searches, and as soon as I find one, it's it's being bought. Yeah, it's got to be done. Which actually, talking about lead times for parts in 2025, I'm gonna hark back to that show we did what six months ago, seven months ago, mm -hmm. which was you know if you're buying a bike now, think about what you know what the availability is going to be for parts. Think about all that stuff. Put some research in and buy smart. Well, it's not changing is it you know there's definitely something going on you know whether it's just shit happening or the great reset however you want to phrase it something's going on yeah. and definitely you want to be buying smart you want to be looking at okay what do i want to write because not everyone sorry mike you know, Mike's dead. Not everyone wants to ride a bike with 30 mil tires and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Some people want a nice, sleek, lightweight, you know, road bike still. But essentially, do you need a bike that's been ridden the Tour de France or do you need something else? And once you've figured out what's the best suitability for you, how available are spare parts now? How available are they going to be? Can you service them? Have you got the tools to service them? Has your local mechanic got the tools to service them? And yeah. then buying a spare everything now. Yep. You know, it's yeah, like absolutely. when Endura made the waterproof bib longs and soft shell, I wish I'd bought three each of those because they don't make them anymore. And um, they lasted me 15 years, I think 10 years. Winter. See, that doesn't always work. So I bought six Silla Italia um, Novus saddles, mm -hmm. Mythos saddles, um, in what, 1994 or something. Yeah. Time ago, thinking, this is the comfiest saddle I've ever had. Uh, uh, for the rest of my life, I'm yeah. going to get. See, when you're a bit fatter and less strong, <laughs> a saddle that was incredibly comfortable suddenly becomes a razor blade. I was going to say, I was going to say, did your arse get fatter? But it really did. Oh, my arse got fatter. And there's two things. The other thing that people forget is if you're less fit, you push down less hard. Mm. So there's more of your weight on the saddle as well. It makes um, sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so I've now got five saddles, which I'm never ever going to use. <laughs> well, probably, if anybody wants it, I'm mid nineties mythos saddle getting touched. Well, probably in the retro bike chic at this point. <laughs> but one of the things I was going to say when we were talking about the preposterous prices of bikes now, and I think we talked about it on a recent pod. You know, you could buy a a ten grand bike, and it's the same way as my rally Mustang gravel bike, which I think is too heavy, but doesn't really yeah. matter because it's a gravel bike. But essentially. You could go to Shallow Sport, which is the local road cycling shop down the, around the corner from me here, and you can buy a really nice second-hand Altegra-equipped bike for 1,500 francs. Yeah. And what's that, 1,200 pounds? And it's pretty much all the bike most of us need, and it's got the gears on that you'd want to ride in the Alps because it's in Switzerland. So yeah. essentially, buying second-hand, getting new old stock components – getting your own little preppers stockpile of disc brake pads and all the rest of it. We are still at that point. There probably isn't ever going to be a return to full availability yeah. in the foreseeable future. And if you, if you don't believe me, cause why would you, you know, cause I'm just some bike mechanic talking shit on the podcast. Um, listen to the cycling industry news podcast I did with Jay Townley, which came out this month and, you know, Jay is an absolute genius, and he goes through the full supply chain and production, and yeah, yeah. Well, well, well worth listening, and that's what I'm basing this on, not just my own prejudices. Well, that's been a very cheery show, Sean. <laughs> well, the the thing is... Started it, off with dope and finished with buy a second-hand bike, because I did one, I'll kill you. <laughs> well, the good news is, is cycling's still awesome, and it makes you feel great, doesn't it? So get out there for a ride. Um, I might go for a little spin, actually, this afternoon. Um, and, yeah, you'll get those positive endorphins from riding your bike. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about doom and gloom a lot of the time here, um, and it's because we're deeply involved in the industry still, and the supply chain problems are very, very apparent. But nothing you know, nothing gets around the fact that there is something truly magical about sitting in a saddle and turning pedals. Yeah, and, you, and that's never going to change. You press the brake, the gear lever, and it actually shifts gear. That's nice too. I mean, you know, we're bringing it up because we care, right? It's like... I'm, yeah. I, 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 it, we, we joke about it, but imagine if you bought this bike and it's just not working. Imagine how you'd feel. I can't get over the fact that, you know, it, essentially it goes, sorry, you've got to update me before you can pedal. I know. I know. My <laughs> guitar amp told me it needed a firmware update the other day. I what kind of world that. are we living in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's us, Sean. Do you want to do a wrap? Yeah, brilliant. So... As ever, you can join us on cyclesystemsonline.com. Junior has given that a complete remake now. So I don't, yeah. we don't cringe when we go to it. It looks awesome. And it just basically says, who are you and, and what do you want? So it points you towards all the free content that we do. We have got the free gear challenge available for everyone now. So you can come and learn all about gears with me with a whole load of videos. And that's shot in my garage here. So it's kind of quite rootsy. Um, and then we've got our courses. You can start paying $30 for right up to the all singing or dancing. And speaking of that, I'll have to send you the latest video from Ryan Downs from Ryan Build Wheels because the reception for that has been astronomical as part of the membership. And the members have been absolutely loving, you know, that video. I, that, that was that was a great 
great member of staff to get, a great contributor to, to online because the guy knows his stuff. And you know, I'm a wheel nerd. Yeah. So when I'm impressed, you know, you know it's impressive. Yeah, well, likewise. You know, likewise, when I'm learning about world building from someone, it's like, okay, these guys are amazing. And then we, you know, we just released this month's VIP lounge with Charlie Kelly talking about his mountain bike museum and his um, legend. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. And sorry, John, it's, it's not the museum that um, Charlie runs. That's his friend, Joe Breeze. He runs the archive. Yeah. Charlie has got all the posters and all of the, you know, the archive stuff there. So we had a fantastic chat with Carl, Charlie about that. And then I've released my DI2 lessons to get, sit alongside Troy Lappy's access lessons. So essentially, if you're listening to this podcast and you're mad about bikes and tech, come to cyclesystemsonline.com and join the party. I tell you one one final plug before we go. Um, we've talked about how much these modern bikes, in fact, all bikes really, but particularly really high end modern bikes, need proper attention and maintenance and all that kind of thing. There is nothing more satisfying than getting the skills you need and knowing that you've done that job well yourself. Well, it you know, does, you're not yeah. trusting your bike to someone else. You're pedaling on something that you know has been looked at properly with skills that you've gained through your own hard work. It's incredibly satisfying. It is, and it's knowing what to trust as well. Though, for example, um, on my son's bike, which is my old bike because he's grown that much now, he's got some American classic tubeless wheels that you've probably heard me talk about, super light wheels. And then he's got the Zip 404s, the Firecrests, which I rebuilt onto Hope RS4 hubs because Zip hubs are crap. Um, incidentally, the, um, the rear wheel especially is a lot more laterally stiff since I rebuilt it as well. Um, but essentially, when my son and I are going down some big descents, and for example, I went out yesterday and I climbed for 26K. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before breakfast, it's just boom. And then, of course, you're coming down the, the other side. So when we go out together, and, of course, he wants to ride the zips because they look cooler, right? Everyone's guilty mm-hmm. of it. I can ride down, and after doing the lesson I did with Josh Port, and we did a whole VIP lounge with him, where Josh talked about developing the Firecrest rim brake surface and exactly what he'd put into it to make it as heat-resistant as he could for rim braking being a carbon clincher, I can ride behind my son going down those descents, confident that he'll make. No, your boy's not going to eat the duck. Basically, and that's yeah, yeah that's golden, isn't it? Yeah, anyway, absolutely. let's flip it around slightly for anyone that doesn't know where people can find you, especially during the Vuelta. <laughs> well, I'm asleep. Well, mostly asleep. Yeah, um, I'm at Cycling Legends Two, uh, CyclingLegendsPodcast.com. Um, we've got a bunch of content coming out. There's a preview show coming out. Um, actually, it'll already be out by the time this show goes out. Uh, we've got Barry Holbin talking about his first Vuelta. Oh, I mean, yes. There's loads and loads of stuff, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, the first three days, I think the highest point is 70 meters, and there's a King of the Mountains point on a 25 meter climb. Oh, brilliant! Um, but I mean, once it gets to Spain and the Basque Country, it's absolutely insane for three weeks. It's going to be brilliant. What's so, Cycling what? Legends two on Twitter. What's the um, temperature forecast? Um, it's going to be warm. You know, they'll need their sunscreen, let's put it that way. Um, I don't think it's going to be as extreme as it might have been, which is a real, it's 
it's actually really relieving because can you imagine and you know riding through spain and the pyrenees or the sierra nevada at 45 46 degrees i mean that would just be soul destroying no thanks i've ridden through the sierra nevada at 30 degrees and i had to sit down at a cafe yeah get a beer. horrible that's what you want <laughs> definitely <laughs> Brilliant. Well, John, thanks for joining us there for our rants. I hope you stayed with us to the end, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was cathartic in a good way and educational in a good way. It wasn't just me offloading. I'm I'm actually having quite a good day today. (laughs) No, I'm really cheerful now. As I say, I'm I'm just going to nip out with the dog, but uh, I'm going to cast a a nervous eye over the carbon parts of my bicycle and I walk past it. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thanks, John, and we'll see you next week, guys.